Welcome to the Audible presented by Trader Joe's. I'm Stuart Mandel, joined as always by Bruce Feldman. Uh, we are a few days away now from the Ohio State Alabama national title game. We're going to have on our Ohio State beat writer for the athletic, Bill Landis, in a little bit. Uh, and we're also going to hit a lot of your mailbag questions, including some, some pretty notable topics right now, Bruce, in terms of the Texas coaching change. Uh, Trevor Lawrence coming off of the Heisman ceremony. He just officially announced he's turning pro. Um, question about Texas A&M. And some more discussion that we had the other night about what Notre Dame needs to do to ascend to the next level and win a national title. We are pleased to be joined now by Bill Landis, the excellent Ohio State writer for The Athletic. This is an obviously a very fluid situation, but as of this recording on Wednesday afternoon, what's your understanding of their COVID situation? That came up quite a bit on Tuesday about whether the game might be possibly affected by it. Gene Smith, Ohio State's AD, saying, no, we, we plan to play on Monday. Yeah, they, they haven't stopped preparing. Um, they, they have had some some positives come up, and, and that's been the case since the they had to cancel the Illinois game. It sort of flared up for them then and has never really gone away. They, they've had it in a place where they've been able to play since since canceling that Illinois game, but it's been day-to-day almost. They, they don't know what's going to pop up and, and you know who might get contact traced out, out of practices or games as well. So they're dealing with it. They, they've not stopped practicing. They, they practice on Tuesday. They practice on Wednesday. They're preparing like they're going to play on Monday, but, but I think we all know that you know, I, I hesitate to say like it's game on for Monday because things could change in, in 24 hours. So as of right now, it sounds like they're going to play on Monday. They're doing everything they can to get ready for that. Bill, I mean, you followed this team for a long time. I'm curious, uh, you know, we've seen a lot from the Buckeyes. It's rare to see them in that underdog role as they were. And obviously, you know, Davos uh, top 25 ballot certainly, you know, became a subplot to everything going on from how you've seen them. I mean, like what is the psyche of this team and what has been such a crazy year among all the craziness that has gone on just outside of outside of college football in general? This might be because I I'm just close to it and I cover Ohio state every day, but I'm not sure that there's another team that just bathes in disrespect and doubt the way that Ohio state does whenever it gets the opportunity to, it doesn't happen all that much because they're the best team in the big 10 and they're, you know, 30 point favorites against most of the teams they play in their own conference. But whenever they get to a stage like this, whether it's playing Clemson or, or especially playing Alabama and, and people for some reason just think Ohio State can't hold up. And, and I think there's valid reasons maybe to think that Ohio State owns it. They, they milk every last drop they can out of that. And, and I think they're doing it again. And, you know, I, I don't think that was the difference in them beating Clemson because I just think it turns out that they were better than Clemson. But but I think it helped. And I don't know if Ohio State's better than Alabama or not, but I think it will help. I think when uh, Nick Saban's daughter tweets that you're trying to duck the Crimson Tide, that's going to get plastered around the Woody Hayes Athletic Center. So they're a really talented team, and they're kind of angry. And and in the past, when Ohio State is angry, that's usually worked out well for them. Yeah, it's been really nice of uh, uh, their opponents, right? I mean, it's not enough for Ohio State to have Justin Fields and a whole bunch of four and five stars, but to have people directly related to the other teams providing bulletin board material like Ryan Day must must be 
uh, in heaven right now. But um, in terms of what we saw from them against Clemson, how much of that do you think was, I mean, it was night and day from the, from the Northwestern game, you know, less than two weeks earlier. Like how much of it was that they've just had so many disruptions from COVID that maybe we just hadn't seen a, a fully formed Ohio State yet? Or how much of it was this was kind of one of those perfect storm nights where all of the revenge against Clemson and all these things that kind of combined to get there, you know, maybe play above themselves. I think it was a combination of, of both of those things, but, but they did get guys back, you know, Chris Olave didn't play in the Northwestern game. And I thought it was very obvious or apparent that, that Justin Fields was uncomfortable without Chris Olave out there. He just, he's such a, um, a comfort, I think, for, for, for Justin. You just sort of already always know where Chris is going to be. He's always going to be in the right spot. He's usually going to be open. If you put the ball on him, he's more than likely going to catch it. And that's, that wasn't there for Justin. And, and I think Justin pressed a little bit because he didn't have that. And it's not to say that Garrett Wilson isn't good because Garrett Wilson's a great receiver in his own right, but it's just a little easier to, to, to slow down an offense when there are two guys who are getting 70% of the targets and one of them's not there. So getting Chris Olave back, I thought was huge for Justin Fields. The thing that's been a bit remarkable for Ohio State, I think, is is how well their offensive line has played over the last three games because they've had a different starting five in, in all three of them. Mich- Michigan State was was crazy. They had basically four new starters in that game, um, and then they got the guys back in against Northwestern, and then against Clemson, they had another starter, Harry Miller, missed that game and had to work Matthew Jones in. And through all of that, they didn't really skip a beat. Like they, they've somehow developed an incredible rhythm despite only playing I think it's three games in like 40 days and and also rotating different guys in there so they've done a really good job of of navigating these disruptions I think I I, I do think you should give people should give Ohio State some credit for, for being able to do that um, but getting guys back I, th- I think was more key than anything else against Clemson like Chris Olave is only one guy but but that one guy is a pretty integral part of the offense. Uh, Bill I, I did a story for the athletic where I talked to many, many coaches in both conferences they play in for scouting reports on each team. And one of the things that came up a lot when I talked to Big Ten coaches was just how big of a drop-off there is between what normally is an outstanding secondary at Ohio State and kind of underwhelming at this point, to put it mildly. Now they're going up against Mac Jones, the best offense in college football, the Heisman Trophy winner. They may also be going up against Jalen Waddell. We'll see if he comes back. John Mechie's a really good receiver. Obviously, Najee Harris is a problem in the run game, in addition to they have the best offensive line in college football. Mm-hmm. What do you think this secondary will be able to try to do to either not get torched by Mac Jones and and all those weapons? Like, what are their, What do you see from them, and what have you heard that they may try to do to at least try to slow them down a little? You know, I, I thought they'd come out in the Sugar Bowl and play a, a bunch of nickel, and they didn't do that. They played it pretty straight up. I think the biggest adjustment they made in that game was was maybe playing their linebackers a little deeper and a little wider to account for some of the RPO stuff that Clemson likes to do. But but they really didn't really change all, all that much. They still played mostly single high safety, cover three. Like, that's been their bread and butter all year, and, and, and I think that's probably what they're going to do against Alabama. I, like. I myself, not being a football coach, would think like, let's, let's change it up. Let's throw something at them that they've never seen before. But I don't know if that's Kerry Combs' MO. So I think they're going to try to do sort of what they've done all year. And it's kind of terrifying when you look at what Alabama's done offensively and, and you try to, you know, project forward and think what that offense might do against this defense if they don't change much up. But 
Um, I, I think they need to tackle better. As simple as that sounds, like Ohio State's given up some big plays this year, and they're they're not as physical in the secondary as as they usually are. They're pretty long, and and I think they have decent speed, but they're just not a physical group, at least a corner. Um, and and that showed up a lot of times when teams get the ball on the edge, and then those guys kind of come up and miss tackles, and then that's where some of the big plays come out. And if you do that against Alabama, if you do it against Najee Harris or, or Devontae Smith, like that's probably going for a touchdown. So they haven't seen, I think, this kind of collective speed from an offense um, all year, and, and why would they playing in the Big Ten? So if those guys can can tackle, I think they'll be okay. You're not going to stop Alabama, but maybe you can keep them from scoring 50, and if you do that, you might have a chance. It's also a game where, uh, I mean, I, I think we are focused and rightfully so on that matchup of, of Alabama and their receivers versus a kind of suspect Ohio State secondary. But Alabama has been burned on the deep ball, um, certainly in the SEC championship and then going back to the Ole Miss game. Does it feel like a game where, you, you know, they, they Trey Sermon has done so much for them the last two weeks, but it feels like this is a game that Justin Fields may have to win with his arm. Yeah, I think that's the case too. But but Trey Sermon is important in that because so much of their passing game is, is based off of how they run the ball and off of play action. And, and you saw some of that against Clemson. Guys just kind of had eyes in the backfield, eyes on Justin Fields. And, and meanwhile, Chris Olave, Garrett Wilson, Jamison Williams are running behind them. And, and I think the plan is probably similar against Alabama. It, it's hard to tell. Like you go back and watch, watch the tied play and it's like you can watch them play against Notre Dame, but Notre Dame is playing a lot with three tight ends or two tight ends. They don't really have the, the speed and the athleticism on the outside that Ohio State has. So I don't know how good of a comparison that is. I think Ohio State can play that way. They can kind of shrink the field a little bit. But if you look at Florida, you look at Ole Miss, and they, they spread Alabama out. They, they ran the quarterback a little bit. Ole Miss played with, with really fast tempo. And, and I think Ohio State is unique in its ability to sort of play whatever kind of game you want, you want to throw at them. So if it becomes a physical run the ball game, they can line up with two tight ends and do that. If it becomes a spread it out, throw it around the yard kind of game, they can do that too. They've mixed tempos to, to really good effect this year. So I like the matchup with Ohio state's offense against, against Alabama's defense. I don't really have any doubts that Ohio state's going to be able to score. It's just a matter of, can they score enough? A bill for, um, for this season is, as, Feels like it's been really long, even though it's truncated. If you were a big, big, big ten fan, at least as it related to the amount of games, um, for from what you see, what has been surprising to you about them? Maybe that you thought coming into October twenty fourth, and now that you've seen them, I mean, in a way, it felt like Justin Fields came full circle, like he was phenomenal in the first three games against lesser competition. Mm-hmm. Then he was was shaky against Indiana. It looked like he played without confidence, and certainly, as you said, without Chris Olave when they played Northwestern. And then he was brilliant, better than he's ever been on a big stage against Clemson. So I'm not sure, you know, where that is in terms of that. Is it Trey Sermon? Is that the the biggest eye opener to you, or what really has been the thing that's like, wow, I didn't see that coming? I guess it would have to be Trey Sermon. Uh, just with the, I mean, maybe not so much coming into the year, but if you compare Trey Sermon now to where he was at the beginning of the year, like it's, I, I don't know who this guy is. Like, I, I don't, this guy came out of nowhere and it didn't sound like it, he was like who who Oklahoma thought he was either. To be honest, right, right, because you would think so, if this if this guy was was in Norman, you wouldn't let him go. So, so I don't know, I don't know, I don't know what happened. I, like Trey was coming off a knee injury. And he was in a running back tandem with Master Teague. And I think it's always hard for backs to get rhythm when they're working in a tandem. And maybe he didn't trust his knee quite to the point that he needed to at the beginning of the season because the offseason was so weird and he didn't get here until April. There was no spring ball. 
no real summer to speak of either. Um, and it just took them time to get comfortable. I think part of it's the offensive line rounding into form, but Trey Sermon is, is like a violent runner of the football, and he was not that through his first probably five games of the year. So I think his ability to do this, to be decisive, to be physical when he's tackled, to break tackles, to, to turn – you know, five yard runs and the 12 yard runs or, or even, you know, 60 yard runs has really opened things up for the offense. So we only have like a one game sample size of that, but that's what it felt like against Clemson. It was just Ohio state could do no wrong, whether it was running or throwing. And, and that wasn't really the case at the beginning of the year, they played some bad teams and they threw it on them, but they weren't running the ball like this. So now that they are running the ball like this, I, I think it opens up sort of really anything you want to do if you're Ryan day calling this offense. So I don't want to, you know, I don't want to skip past this game necessarily that's on Monday, but it is my job at The Athletic to do the early uh, 2021 top 25 that goes up the next morning. So in doing my research, I'm looking at Ohio State and their depth chart, and I don't think I fully realized just how much of this team is either seniors or guys we're sure are going to turn pro. I mean, we know Justin Fields is, is gone. Chris Olave, I'm sure, is gone. But like all of those linebackers are seniors and I assume Sean Wade's turning pro. And yeah, I know some of these, you know, seniors, Oh, um, you know, you've got three NFL offensive linemen, probably. I know some of the seniors could still come back because it's a free year, but is there a feeling around that program that like this year is there like, it's, they have to win this year because it's the window because next year I know Ohio state reloads, but this seems like a particularly big uh, reload they'll be doing next year. It, it does feel that way. Someone asked me the other day if, if this current run, if you want to call it a run that Ohio State's on, feels at all like 2014. And, and part of the reason I said no is because you knew whatever happened at the end of that season with the 2014 team, most of, if not all of those guys are going to be back because it was a lot of sophomores. This team is going to lose a ton. And like you said, they, they recruit as well as anybody. They reload every year. And, and it's because of that, I don't think Ohio State really ever has a, a window. Um, but, but this does feel feel pretty urgent when you consider like Justin Fields is gone. Chris Olave is probably gone to the NFL. Um, at least three other offensive linemen are, are going to the NFL. Um, Sean Wade's going, all the linebackers are going, Jonathan Cooper's going, um, Tommy Togi, I might go like, there's, there's a lot on, on this team that's going to, they're going to leave after this year and there's talent behind them, but you have, you have a, a, a very deep, talented, older group at the moment. That's sort of, peaking I think at the right time and it would feel you, you always feel a sense of regret I guess when you don't win a national championship but particularly with this group I think there, there was a reason that Ryan Day said that this team had had the I think he's called it like once in a lifetime team in the beginning of the year we we're like are you sure um, I, I think now we're seeing what he meant so if they weren't to win with with this current group of, of Buckeyes I think that'd be a pretty hard pill to swallow okay Bill I'm gonna pick up on what you said when you said peaking at the right time does that mean you are picking the Buckeyes to beat mighty Alabama? Man, I, d- I don't know. Um, I can see it. I can see a path there. I, I think not. I have not like officially made my pick yet, um, but, uh, and we'll do that on our, our, our Ohio state podcast later this oh, week. Good Sorry, tease, guys. You're, not, you're, you're, not, you're not getting that scoop. Um, but uh, I, I think I'm going to pick Alabama. I would certainly pick Ohio state to cover. Um, 
But when I, when I look at the matchup, like I said, there, there are things that I like with Ohio State's offense against Alabama's defense that I think they're going to be able to keep pace. I just don't – it's really hard for me to trust Ohio State's secondary against Alabama. And, and I said the same thing against Clemson. That's why I picked Clemson, and I was, I was so wrong. It's embarrassing. But um, Alabama is, is a different kind of animal. So I, I don't think I'm quite there yet ready to pick Ohio State. Bill, thank you for joining us on the Audible today. And be sure to listen to Bill's Ohio State podcast that – is four to six with A and B. That's right. That's correct. Yep. And you're the B. Um, who's the A again? That would be our friend Ari Wasserman. Ah, so Andy Staples got snubbed there. Okay. Um, <laughs> Loyal, audible listener, Ari Wasserman, I should note. You should note it. That's very, that is, you should note it. Um, so, you know what? I'm not agreeing with you, Bill. I think, um, I'm not saying you're definitely picking Ohio State, but I don't know if I'm going in that direction. I feel like, I don't know. I just don't think they can slow them down. I think Ohio State's offense will score a lot, but I just uh, don't think it's going to be enough. Stu? I'm kind of in the same boat Bill is. Like, part of me just wants to say this is just like 2014 and they've got the momentum and they're going to pick up where they left off and win it. And then I started thinking more about what that Al- the Alabama offense is going to do to that defense. And I'm like, ah, I don't think I can do it. I don't think I can do it. So I just hope we don't all pick Alabama because it'll be very boring. And then also the- that would probably be good for Ohio State. Another thing for Ryan Day to hang on the walls. Exactly. The Athletic Center. Yeah. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. As always, you can send your emails to theaudiblepod at gmail.com. Um, you know, it's interesting. Uh, we recorded our last show after the semifinal games, and the very next day there was big college football news we haven't had a chance to address yet. Texas, Chris Del Conte going back on his word, firing Tom Herman and replacing him within hours with Steve Sarkeesian. Blaine Hammond from Virginia, dear Bruce and Stu, a – Eight and three year breaking in both new coordinators where all losses were by one possession is a good year. Sager and predicting rankings had Texas as the number 14 team in the country. If this wasn't acceptable, why not make the move last year? And then Texas, and these are his words, not mine, an elitist pompous school replaces him with a 57% winning coach that shows, I'm not going to put that part in, with a 15, 57% winning coach. This is nuts. All right, how do we, there's lots to unwind there. Okay, so I think we talked about this a few weeks back. I know I talked about it on our uh, TV shows on that Saturday before National Signing Day. It was a very, very carefully worded, albeit cryptic statement that AD Chris Del Conte put out. Um, and from the people I talked to at Texas said, he's not that safe there, you know? And I think people looked at the wording and was like, oh, he's definitely going to be back for the 2021 season. And everything I had heard, and I think we talked about this on the show back in early December, was Texas Brass had decided they were ready to move on from Tom Herman. And they targeted Urban Meyer, and that didn't work out. He doesn't want to be a college coach right now. So then I think they kind of assessed their options. And at that point, 
Um, I think they just felt like, you know what, this is this Tom Herman is not the guy who's going to get it done. I, after he got fired, I talked to somebody who was on the staff who made the case. It's like, I just don't think the players had bought into him anymore. I think there was a disconnect with him and many of them. Uh, I just, it just felt like the belief that Tom Herman could get Texas where Texas wants to be. And that's to be a playoff contender. It, it had all but faded. And I think last year, at the end of last year, when they fired most of their staff, I think it was a last ditch effort, but the handwriting at that point was really felt like it was on the wall that um, they were already past the point of no return. It's when you, Brian Kelly, notwithstanding, whereas a guy who's made some staff changes and, and hit the reset button and it's worked out, but Brian Kelly was also at a different place and had done a lot more and was more established at Notre Dame than Tom Herman was and was more of a proven commodity. And I think that it's just a different place. And to me, that's why they ripped the Band-Aid off. Now, going from, from him to Sark is definitely a questionable move. I mean, Sark's done a terrific job as an offensive coordinator. He did a good job at Washington turning around what was people forget was a dreadful t- team at the time and got them respectable. Now, they didn't turn into a top 10 team. Then he went to USC and all sorts of problems personally came, came out. Um, everything I've heard was that Alabama and Texas, they had discussions and, and Texas had done some vetting of Steve Sarkeesian and felt comfortable with him going on, but it is, you know, any coach is a risk anyway. Um, how confident Stu are you that Steve Sarkeesian can lead somewhere for Texas be, you know, better than where Tom Herman had them? Well, obviously hindsight is 2020. You can never really tell for sure, but I had a lot more confidence when they hired Tom Herman than I do with them hiring Sark. And I mean, I mean, it's, it didn't work out, but at the time, I remember on Thanksgiving night, four years ago, it was a full on bidding war between LSU and Texas to get Tom Herman. And based on, it was only a two year run, obviously at Houston, but he had won so many big games and obviously uh, being the OC of the 2014 Ohio state team, like that seemed like a home run hire. So now you fire him and you replace him with a guy who has been a head coach at two power five programs and didn't really do anything all that outstanding. Um, now he comes out of the Nick Saban, uh, you know, giving coaches a, another shot. Uh, and, and obviously Lane Kiffin has done very well since, since then. And Sark and Lane Kiffin go back a long ways, but, um, and I wrote about this in the mailbag it's not just about Sark or, or who he hires or any of that. It's is, is Texas is the leadership at Texas in place for a football coach to be successful. Cause I think one of the things that got really overlooked and what a mess was the situation there with the fight song with the eyes of Texas, where, you know, the athletes, black athletes came out last summer and said they want the school to discontinue it because it has racist origins. And obviously they did not do that. Uh, that would be a huge decision and the fans didn't want to do that. So it's created this awkward situation where the athletes don't want to be part of it, but the fans demand that it be there. And Tom Herman took a lot of flack when after the red river game, Sam Ellinger was the only one who stayed on the field for the, for the, for the playing of it. So, and now the band refuses to play it. So like Steve Sarkeesian has done a fantastic job with the Alabama offense and nobody could deny that he's a great offensive coach. And I'm 
really excited to see what he does with Bijan Robinson, right? I mean, it could be the next Najee Harris in college football. But how the hell is he going to handle a situation like that or any of the number of the other things that come up where, like, you don't know if the boosters or the regions of Texas or who's, who's your boss? Is it Chris Del Conte or is it the guys that write the checks? Um, I think that's part of what's led to a lot of dysfunction over the last decade at Texas. Yeah, and we'll see if he can get it going. I mean, it's, I don't know. I mean, I'm curious to see how it's going to play out. You know, he's a sharp guy. Hopefully he's in a better place than he was. It certainly seems like he's in a better place than he was, you know, when he was coaching at USC and even towards the end at Washington. But again, this is, a, this is not an easy job. Now the Big 12, it's not like he's in the SEC West. But again, you know, if you're the head coach at, at Texas, if you go eight and four enough, you're not going to, they're not going to keep you. But I think really what everything I heard was it wasn't really just the eight and four part of it. It was really the, just the, the, the feeling of the players inside the program just felt like it wasn't working there. And I think that's a hard place to be and it's a hard place to recruit from. So we'll see if he can look in some ways, I think this job is actually, even though Tom Herman probably, you know, he had more success than certainly uh, Charlie strong did. But now when I look at it, your arch rival in the state, at least Texas A&M just came, is coming off a top five season and they are recruiting really well. They're only going to recruit better. Right. And Oklahoma's had a really good run now under Lincoln Riley and they're not slowing down. So, I mean, it's, it's, it's tougher, you know, it's just, it's a, it's an uphill climb. Ben in Charlotte, North Carolina, Bruce and Stu, frequent contributor. I wanted to follow up on your discussion regarding Notre Dame's ability to win a national title. Do you think joining a conference would help close the gap to the Clemson, Ohio State, and Alabamas of the world? I know it's a common theme and it won't happen, but if they joined the ACC, for example, they would have an easier path to the playoffs, especially once it expands, and make more money to help with recruiting, infrastructure upgrades, et cetera. I can, I'll just start by saying this. Money is not Notre Dame's problem. <laughs> Uh, they are, if you've ever been to that campus, to that athletic, uh, facility, um, yeah, like this is not a situation of, they don't have the money to keep up with the Ohio States and Alabamas of the world, but it's a legitimate question is, is being an independent in some way impeding them from taking that next step? I don't think it is. I really don't. I think it's some of their own challenges that I think are, are maybe, not probably less slightly somewhat restrictive, you know, in terms of not necessarily recruiting players, but maybe keeping some of them eligible in, in the Notre Dame environment. And that's not a negative reflection on how Notre Dame's academics are, but I think that's just kind of the recruiting pool is, is a bit smaller and their ability to, you know, their challenges that go into it, I think, and, and stay into it, I think are, are restrictive. And I think Notre Dame is proud of, of that. In, in a lot of ways and, and should be, but you know, I, I wouldn't be apoplectic if I was a Notre Dame fan, if you're the fourth or fifth best program in college football right now, I mean, they're, I don't think they're light years away from having a chance to win a national title. They're just margin for error is smaller than Clemson's and Alabama's and Ohio States, but you know what? So is almost everybody else too. Yeah. I just think that there's frustration because it just feels like, um, is this as good as it gets? Can they, I mean, you see the, the level that those three programs you mentioned recruit at, the level Georgia recruits at, 
And Notre Dame, Notre Dame recruits well, don't get me wrong. They're top 10 classes. They get a couple, you know, they don't have, but they don't, they're not getting five-star upon five-star upon five-star. And I think the biggest issue is just where they're located. Um, you know, they, ESPN put out a release about the ratings for the semifinals. And um, somebody noted that you know, they show the top 10 markets and none of the top 10 markets for that game were anywhere near Indianapolis. I mean, there were Ohio ones, but you attribute that to Ohio state. So um, like they don't, they don't have all those other schools have a natural recruiting footprint. They do recruit nationally. Ohio state goes and recruits nationally. Alabama gets kids from other parts of the country, but they have a starting point. Notre Dame has to get every single kid from another part of the country for the most part. Um, and that's a challenge. That's, that's not really a, a ideal way to be able to get five-star upon five-star upon five-star. So, yeah, I think the, the best thing you can hope is that, look, for years, Notre Dame's main recruiting selling point was their tradition. That was, um, you know, look what we did in the 60s. Look what we did in the, in the late 80s. Now, Brian Kelly has built up a nice track record here where they can go into recruits' homes and say, we've made the playoff to the last three years. Come take, help us take the next step. Um, you know, so like you said, it's not like they're light years away. Uh, it's just hard to see the, how they match those other programs. Um, this is a question that I've answered repeatedly, but I'm curious to get your opinion from Gordon and Cameron. Happy New Year, gentlemen. How good is Texas A&M really? When I watched them in the Orange Bowl, they seemed at least a full step behind Alabama, Ohio State, and Clemson, at least a half step behind Notre Dame. While the score would suggest otherwise, to my eyes, they had all they could handle against a uh, depleted North Carolina team for most of their bowl games. So are they truly the number five or have some suggested number four team in the country? Uh, I think they are, are of that caliber. Um, they're really good on both lines. They're really well coached on both sides of the ball. Jimbo's a really excellent offensive mind and Mike Elko is the same on defense. They have good skill guys. I think, you know, I like Kellen Mond probably more than maybe some other um, college football media in terms of like, I think he's, I think he's a really good quarterback. He's obviously played a lot. Um, you know, he, there is some in, inconsistency with, with Texas and I'm like, just like there's probably inconsistency with pretty much everybody else. I think it's a really good team. Um, I think there's a couple of places where, eh, you know, they're probably not as strong as some of the other teams in the top four, but they're definitely good on both lines and they have a good quarterback. I mean, if you were to say, um, is, you know, he's not Trevor Lawrence. He's not Justin Fields. You know, Mac Jones is, operates that offense really well. I would say he's just a notch below that. I don't think, you know, I think in some ways, in some ways they, they are feel a little similar to Notre Dame. They have a good quarterback who's played a lot, who can make plays with his leg. They have, they have a really good offensive line too. And I think they have a better defensive line than the Irish, but um you know, I, I feel like they're actually pretty similar to that, you know, and I'm curious to see if they can take the next step up. I think, I don't think they're a great team, but I think they're a very, very good team, which is the way I would describe Notre Dame right now. Yeah, they're, pro they're probably is, is a, you know, they were, they were the teams that were compared for the number four spot and there probably wasn't much of a difference there. I don't think as much as the a &M fans want us to say, like, because Notre Dame got blown out by, uh, Alabama in the semifinal while they beat UNC that, that, yeah, Hey, look, A&M 
you know, we finished with one loss, they finished with two, we should be the higher ranked team, you know, it's not A&M's fault, but I wish they had gotten a better opponent in the bowl game because to me facing UNC without the most productive running back tandem since um, Reggie Bush and Lendale white and being taken to the, I mean, ended up a 14 point margin, but it went right down to the wire. It was tied with four minutes left. That didn't tell me that. Yeah. That's, that's living proof that A&M is a, was a playoff caliber team this year. I think they could get there next year. Um, I just don't think they were quite there this year. I don't think their defense was as good as Notre Dame's. Um, Kellen Mond, I mean, there's really not, I mean, Kellen Mond and Ian Book are actually fairly similar when you think about it. Three or four year starting quarterbacks who had their moments, but you're not going to say that they're Trevor Lawrence. So um, I, I got a lot of flack from AM fans because I suggested I think Oklahoma should be ranked higher in the final rankings. I just think Oklahoma by the end of the season had a better team than them um, that was clicking on all cylinders. But the way we do polls, you don't dare put a two loss team ahead of a one loss team in the final poll. Yeah. I, you know, I actually saw that uh, when you put that out and I was like, that's interesting. I didn't, I, I wouldn't have done that. I mean, if you'd asked me who I think would win now, I might pick Oklahoma. I'm not sure, but um you know, I do think AM had a better season, like for me, and we all have different rationale for where we, you know, I feel like I do take what happened on the field. I'd probably have had AM higher than Oklahoma, but I understood your, your, you know, rationale at the end of the day. I don't think it's like, it doesn't matter. You know, in the grand yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't yeah. matter. I think it's, they were basically, you know, flip-flopped for a lot of people I thought. And, you know, but I, I, when you put them there, I was like, huh, I didn't even, I didn't even think that somebody would put Oklahoma that high. Not like it was like an outrage. I mean, they whipped a Florida team that, you know, that didn't play well and, and whatnot, but it was still, you know, I felt like that was a different caliber game. Let's take a Trevor Lawrence question. Uh, we're recording this the day after the Heisman. Trevor was the runner up. This is from Frank in Sacramento. Any reason for the regression of Trevor Lawrence and Clemson? His passing looked off, and in spite of better recruiting and great coaching, they've gone from champion in 2018 to runner-up in 2019 to semifinal loss in 2020. I think, yeah, I mean, I think when when they won the national title and he blew out Alabama and, and he was a true freshman quarterback, if we had a, had a bet that day, wouldn't you have bet that he would get one more before he was gone? Oh yeah, no doubt. Especially given, you know, how they're, how they've been recruiting. I mean, it shows you how hard it is to win a national title. I think that's one of the yes. things, you know, and I think that shouldn't be left, you know, just kind of, cause we're so used to seeing, seeing these two teams on top of the college football world. I mean, again, to me, there's no question who's the greatest college football coach of all time. And, the, and, and, you know, what we're talking about with Trevor Lawrence is just another reason why it's really, really hard to win national titles and to keep, to, to avoid the complacency and everything else. And that goes with being, being great and staying great. Um, you know, look, I mean, Trevor Lawrence had a, had an amazing three-year career. It started out great. I think it ended, you know, I mean, the one thing that I will kind of kind of take away is you never heard anything, you know, like, negative remotely about how Trevor Lawrence handled himself. It was always like, you know, our, our Clemson writer, Grace Raynor, who we both think highly of, um, you know, I've, you know, seen the way she talks about how he treats people. And I know in his thank you note that he was announcing that he was going to the NFL, 
know, he talked about that was the most important thing to be known as somebody who treats people really well. And so, um, you know, I mean, he's somebody that I will have really positive uh, feelings for as he moves on to the NFL, because like, I, I can't, you know, I interviewed him, I think when he was in high school at the elite 11, I, you know, short of, you know, knowing that he was really tall and had long hair, I didn't have a great, you know, sense of him at that point. And I think we've seen, especially in this year with all the, every, all the craziness, um, I think we've seen his personality um, shine through and his leadership and his character shine through. So, you know, whether he won two national titles or whether he won a Heisman, I mean, it's weird, you know, like Deshaun Watson in my head, I have to remember that he didn't win a Heisman just because I remember him as a national champion, you know, and I remember him as like, as a leader and as like a shining star of, of a character. And I think, again, same guy, you know, won a national title, same program, um, didn't win a Heisman, but, you know, you know, I don't think that in any way remotely defines him or feels like there's a, a box unchecked. I don't think he regressed as a passer either. He, you know, he had a rough uh, game, obviously, against Ohio State, that weird fumble where he, where he thought he had, you know, wrapped it up um, in an interception. But I'm just looking here. His passer rating improved every year. He just didn't have as much help this year. Um, you think back to the that national title game against Alabama, and he's throwing to Justin Ross and T. Higgins. And I mean, Justin Ross has a medical condition before the season and never plays. Um, Amari Rogers was pretty much the only experienced receiver he had all year. A couple of the guys that they thought were going to be the next great receivers were hurt pretty much all year. Uh, and then their offensive line. I mean, it was a weakness all year, but just there weren't a lot of teams on their schedule that could exploit it. But Ohio State certainly did. And, um, you know, I think it just shows you that you could have the number one pick, a great you know, one of the great college quarterbacks we've seen recently, and he can't do it. In, he can't do it all alone. Um, just didn't have as much help this year. Yeah. And uh, no shame in that. And um, I don't know, like I said, uh, he had an amazing career there in three years and you know, hats off to him. We will be doing a second episode later this week before the national championship game. Send your questions to the audible pod at gmail.com. We'll see you next time. Mm-hmm.